Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. More than 4 million people around the world and more than 607,000 Americans have died during the course of the COVID pandemic. Vaccination rates are rising in wealthy nations where life is quickly returning to normal as the rapid spread of the more virulent Delta variant sparked concerns, whether in wealthy nations or across the developing world and uh, spurring lockdowns as well. Joining us to discuss the last week and a half on world markets are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch uh, in our New Jersey Bureau, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy, now constituting our Copenhagen Bureau. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Uh, as always, Vago, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much, Vago. Good to be here. Great to be here, Vago, by way of gentle correction, now in Stockholm. Ah, okay, very good. Uh, I see that your Scandinavian travels are going well, and we're going to ask you some per personal ways of, of how the COVID pandemic is changing, how uh, the adventuresome travel, see, I put you in that category, Richard. Uh, before we get started, uh, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, Fink Contieri, Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Ron, uh, start us off, what drove performance of the group, individual stocks, and what do you think were the standout stories of the week? Yeah, I mean, just to, just to start, I mean, it was, it was broadly pretty quiet. Uh, my sense is a lot of folks were still out of the office or you know, maybe just had one foot in the office uh, post the holiday, given that you know it, the celebration, at least in the U.S., fell on Monday. So it was, it was, a, it was a quiet week. Volumes in particular weren't very high across, across stocks. If you look at um, the S&P on the week, uh, the price change was about 40 basis points, um, so roughly flat. Uh, and uh, the defense stocks were largely in line with the market, just kind of drifting with the market. Um, Boeing on the week with some news that China might be willing to do a flare test on the 737 MAX uh, outperform the market by about 70 or 80 basis points. The real champion of the week was uh, Virgin Galactic in anticipation of the flight that happened today that I'm certain we'll talk about, was up about 10% uh, on that. Um, so and that, that's kind of, kind, of, kind of where we are. If you look at uh, oil markets, uh, one of the things we're tracking um, you know, the oils had this steady march upwards. Um, so if you look at, you know, just, uh, you know, pick, pick, pick the crude, um, you're kind of in the mid seventies now uh, for crude oil and, uh, interest rates have pulled back a bit. Um, you know, we're on the 10 year treasury, uh, about just a hair under 1.4%. Uh, and I would say, you know, the broader discussion among the market players is, you know, really, really kind of what's going on, you know, is, is the reflation trade over? Is it not? Where are rates going? Where are they not going? It's just, there's a, kind of some broader confusion. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. You saw um, some discussion that, you know, that maybe the reflation trade was over, but the bank stocks performed, which is something which is kind of counterintuitive. Uh, but I, I'd say that's kind of where the week was on the market. The Virgin Galactic flight, uh, certainly congratulations to Sir Richard Branson and the whole Virgin Galactic team for uh, a very, very cool accomplishment. You know, decades ago, he said he was going to be the first into space. And it's kind of neat that uh, of the space barons, he did become uh, first. But we'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. Sash, talk to us a little bit about global travel. Uh, 
trends and what it's meant uh, for deliveries, Airbus out with uh, June orders and, and deliveries. But we're looking at that bifurcation that you've been talking about for a long time, right? UK going to be reopening, I think it's on July 21, uh, right? It was delayed by about a month. Uh, government is still urging masks in the UK. France is ruling out another lockdown, but we've got countries around the world that are responding to the spread of the Delta variant. We saw the United Arab Emirates, for example, closes borders to Indonesian uh, travel, certainly something uh, worrisome if you're that gateway hub uh, to, to Asia that, that a lot of the Gulf carriers have sort of positioned themselves at. Talk to us a little bit about some of the trends that, that, that you see developing. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, you know, to start with actually the interesting just just to pick up on Ron's um point on stocks, very interesting thing at the end of the week, really strong uh close to the week, particularly the civil aerospace stocks uh in Europe, you know, Airbus, and this was very much driven by their very good June orders deliveries. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, you know, up three and a half percent on the uh, on the day. Most of the civil oriented stocks were up. You know, two two and a half percent comfortably uh, on Friday alone, which shows the degree to which, when you get positive news on uh, or, or news that is taken by the market as being positive, then there's still a lot of sort of pent up demand there. But of course, the beginning of the week was was much flatter. It's going to be interesting to see how much that carries through. So, um, yeah, in in terms of uh, you know the 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 international travel market. Um, and you know, not wishing to uh, steal any of Richard's thunder because he's actually doing it, and I'm hugely impressed by that. But you're absolutely right; it's a it's an astonishingly patchy situation at the moment, um, and pretty much anywhere where you, you know where you look, you, you you find pairs of countries where one country is opening up and the other country is sort of shutting down again. So you know, if at the moment you want to fly from you know, the UK to France, the UK will let you fly to France, the French won't let you land, or at least won't let you get off and, uh, uh, you know, go into France without a long quarantine. Um, Germany, similar, although that's going to lift at some stage. And, you know, across Europe, there's a sort of ever so slight chaos about the, the, the various restrictions, which is really hurting those airlines that are heavily dependent on international travel, as opposed to uh, domestic travel. And, the interesting thing about the UK um, lifting of restrictions, um, actually July 19, is going to be that the UK is lifting restrictions despite the fact that the number of coronavirus cases in the UK is very, very high at the moment. The, the um, awkward bit being that the cases are all among young people and they're not generally going to hospital and they're not generally getting coronavirus terribly seriously. It's a political gamble, uh, albeit one that some uh, medics and scientists seem to accept. Um, but of course, if the UK coronavirus levels are very high, a lot of other countries which are less well vaccinated may not be prepared to, to take the other half of the trade. And I think we're going to, you know, we haven't quite lost the whole of the, the whole of this summer. And, you know, there are some large domestic markets of which the US is, you know, the standout, but, you know, China's still pretty good. They will have a, a or you will have a pretty much normal, if not better than normal summer domestically. But elsewhere in the world, um, I think, you know, long haul airlines are going to have a really tough time of it. And we'll probably have to refinance over the winter uh, because that's when they, you know, that's when their cash burn is toughest. 
Uh, Richard, talk to us a, a little bit about, uh, first, about anything you want to talk about about the week. Uh, but also, you guys did start your uh, trip out uh, in Denmark, in Copenhagen. Uh, you guys are now up in Stockholm, and you guys are going to be heading up uh, to Norway uh, as well for one of anybody who knows you knows you guys uh, do do spend some of the nicer, uh, cooler vacations. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in the course of your travels. Well, Vago, what's fascinating is that the um, the markets, as they say, are responding exactly as you'd expect them to. That is to say, this whole experience is what you'd expect it to be. Spotty, but there's capacity. I mean, that's how you could define pretty much our entire industry these days. Um, you know, we went to Denmark. The Danes uh, welcomed us with open arms. We went to Sweden. The Swedes welcomed us with open arms. We went to Norway. Uh, it was not a mark of my VIP status that the Norwegians gave us a personal police escort back across the border uh, because no way, they're just not open. And we, there was some ambivalent guidance on their website, but ultimately it's our responsibility for having taken a chance. I don't blame them. Uh, and you just have to be prepared for these sorts of things, especially in markets and countries where things are prone to lockdown again and whatever else. And uh, the second point is that when we had to reorient our trip back to Sweden and, and Denmark, far from hardship travel, I can tell you, it was super easy to do so because there's a lot of capacity out there. It's just not a problem. So, you know, everything I'm seeing out here in, the, in my, my summer family expedition uh, just confirms the feeling that we're having a spotty recovery. You know, everyone started off saying, back a year and a half ago, it's going to be like a U, a V, a Nike swoosh, an incumbent, whatever, recumbent, whatever. Whatever line it is, it ain't flat. It ain't straight. It's really choppy. <laughs> and it's going to be choppy. But on the other hand, nothing has seen me, nothing I have seen has dissuaded me from my opinion that the fourth quarter of 2022 is when we will get back to the 2019 RPKP. Still sticking with it. Um, uh, Sash, let me give you a, a follow uh, on Airbus and then uh, Ron want to get your sense. Go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I just wanted to come back actually to, um, uh, you know, Airbus's orders and deliveries and, uh, you know, apologies for sort of uh, circling back on this, but, you know, Airbus had a very good June. Um, they, you know, having had a pretty weak um, April, May, I mean, 45 deliveries in uh, April, 50 in May, 77 deliveries in um June, which is pretty much, um, well, in fact, is above the average for the last 10 years. Uh, and within that, um, they had a really good quarter for uh, the A350. Um, they've had problems getting the A350 out in the last uh, in, the la in the last couple of months or so. In fact, most months of this year, they delivered 11 A350s uh, in June, uh, which was impressive. 56 A A320 Neos. Um, and... Uh, it may be that the pattern that Airbus is going to revert to is going to be that the first two months of any quarter are, are sort of you know, a little bit patchy and then everything gets out at the end of the quarter because that's what companies do. But the fact is, if they can keep on uh, this pattern uh, of delivering, you know, broadly, um, uh, you know, 100 and uh, well, they did 125 aircraft in the in the first quarter and um, uh, 175 in the second quarter. They're going to comfortably beat their guidance, which is about 560, 570 deliveries for the year. They're going to come to at least 600. Uh, and the system looks as if it is a little bit smoother at the moment, and they should be 
uh, delivering some of the aircraft they still hold in stock. I think those some of those will take some time, but it was a it was a really encouraging end of the quarter. I thought. Ron, yeah, similar. Sim, similarly, I can never say that word. Um, if you look at um, Airlease, they reported uh, at the end of the week um, their activity um, uh, for uh, for the quarter, and um, you know, they delivered uh, twelve new um, aircraft. Uh, and uh, that included two Airbus A320 Neos, three Airbus A321s, one A330-900, one A350-900, two 737-8s Maxes, um, and one 737-9 Max, and two 787-9s. Um, notably, um, the, you know, how can I say it? Deliveries of Maxes still really, it's not Maxes, deliveries of uh, 787s still haven't really picked up yet. I mean, it's they're still dealing with some sort of approval about how the, the fabrication of the fuselages is going down in South Carolina. Um, so um, it looks like, you know, my guess would be Boeing's going to have to, at some point here, revise their, um, their 787 deliveries for the year because, you know, you know, we're already through the middle of the year and they're nowhere, where they, nowhere near where they would need to be to hit that guide. Richard, uh, you want to add to this because I want to go to uh, the other big story of the week, which Ron uh, mentioned, right, is the Boeing is is whether Beijing is going to recertify the 737 to return to flight, uh, 737 MAX to return to flight in China. But but go, go ahead on your next point. Yeah, just one point that, you know, of the next generation wide bodies, they're both kind of in their own swim lanes in terms of customers. And it's sort of just, you know, Boeing got to cruising altitude and beyond. Arguably, they certainly shouldn't have gotten to rate 14 on the 7-8, whereas Airbus really wasn't quite at that cruising altitude of, of, of 10 per month on the 350. So it's almost a, a structural issue that I think on the wide body front, Airbus is better able to uh, come up with a sustainable level at this point. Whereas Boeing, I think with the 787 is just bound to disappoint with uh, month after month of, uh, you know, threes and fours here and there. Ron, start us off on the 737 uh, discussion, right? I mean, uh, the program was definitely seen as uh, something that could be a casualty in terms of relations between Beijing and Washington that are getting uh, steadily uh, more acerbic. Um, Sash, I think you, you've got, uh, let, let's go Ron, Sash and, and, and Richard, go ahead. It's a couple of things. One, it's not out of the woods yet. Right. So there was an article, um, I believe it was on you know, Bloomberg news service, uh, saying that Chinese officials have signaled that they are open to conducting test flights on the seven through seven max. Um, although they didn't say which officials and it was, it was a little, little cloudy about the whole thing. Um, but that definitely seems like a step forward, but from doing test flights to getting the final approval still could take several months, if not longer. And it, I'm of the view, uh, and I don't think this is all that controversial. It's still part of the broader political situation, if you want to call it that, between the U.S. and China, right? So, you know, the, the day that this kind of hit, hit the tape was also the day, I believe, the, the Biden administration added, what, five more companies? Was it five, six? Uh, to the entity list. So there's still back and forth going on here. Sash? Everything uh, in China has a political aspect to it. Um, and it, 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 it's worth 
just circling back to the news flow, or actually the lack of news flow on the C919 program, um, there were rumors that were going around the, uh, you know, among some investors about 10, 15 days ago that the Chinese were going to use the uh, anniversary of the uh, Chinese Communist Party at the beginning of July as the occasion to announce the certification of the C919. Now, we all thought that was actually far too early. We've expected the certification late in the year. And the program has been notable for having a pretty low rate of flight tests, to be honest. So, you know, 1st of July was very aggressive. But the next date to hold in, uh, you know, in, in your mind is going to be the, the rescheduled Zhuhai Air Show, um, which is on September 28th to October the 3rd. I still think that's a very tight deadline for the C919, but it's entirely possible they will actually fly it at that show, whereas they've never flown the C919 as an air show before, certainly a, you know, a major quasi-international one. Um, and I would think that, that you know, there's not a lot, you know, they might as well keep the lid on the 737 MAX until they can actually announce some unequivocal good news on the C919, even if then the certification sort of slips into, into early 2022. Richard? Um, you know, I think it is important that this news came because even just putting it on the table implies that they know the value, as, as both Ron and Sash have said, yes, this is inherently political. But the fact that they've said, OK, we can negotiate, that's sort of the implication from this. And that's certainly welcome news, because before this, I think there might have been a kind of fine, we're just decoupling and you should too. See you later in another century when we're friends again. At least there's something to talk about. And I'm kind of happy for that. As for the 919, I'm, a, I'm afraid <laughs> this looks like a 2024 entry into service story. I just don't think there's any good news coming on this front. And then, of course, there's the very big question of what about all the U.S. and, and Western equipment on it? Um, no one really knows the status of the MEU list. And, you know, yes, COMAC's not on it, but the rest of AVIC is. I, when, you st when it comes time to actually start delivering all of the important systems, the things that are needed to make this fly, um, what's that ramp going to look like? And it's sort of interesting. There's the parallel program with MS-21 in Russia, effectively the same story. And the Russians have effectively given up the ghost on the Pratt-powered version. Um, and so I think as Pratt, so they have to reorient it towards the PD-14 powered model. And I think they've rolled out the first of those. So in other words, if they're really going to go anywhere with any confidence without negotiating, it's going to need a complete redo with Chinese equipment. And that's more of an end of decade sort of story at best. Do you think China will certify the 919 even if it's not ready, right? China always tries to act like, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, is the champion for its own industry is, um, you know, how shall I say state state control does blur the lines between the political and the business and national security and the like, but also wants to act like it is a frontline aviation power as well. Do you think that the certification decision on the 919 comes whether it's ready for prime time or not? Is that uh, what do you think there. the Chinese administration takes? I'll throw this out there. The CAAC so far, I think, has done a really stellar job at making Chinese uh, aviation incredibly safe, especially considering where they came from. It's just remarkable that they would want to compromise that uh, seems unlikely. Now, having said that, you do have stories like the ARJ-21 where they said, oh, yes, 
it's certified, please nobody fly it. And of course it took years for anybody to do more than, you know, a couple of officials flying in a regional route. So in other words, they might have a mechanism that says, it's certified unless you want to put people in it or something like that. <laughs> that might be a kind of interim step. Okay, I see two hands uh, up. So uh, Richard or Sash, whoever, whichever one of you want to go uh, first. That was very funny, Richard. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just follow on from that. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think the Chinese are not going to uh, play politics with a political industry like this because the risk uh, it, you know, to the to the Communist Party, effectively in China, if something goes wrong with the C nine one nine one nine, would be immense. Um, I've talked to uh, various industrialists um, at previous Zhuhai Air shows, and they referred to the head of the CAAC, uh, who Richard, I think, rightly identifies as you know, CAAC has has run a very tight ship in terms of aviation safety. The head of the of CAAC's certification uh, side is referred to as Doctor No. And that's why the C919 has spent so long uh, in development, because every time they come up with a, uh, you know, they, 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 they present data to CAAC, uh, CAAC just says, nope, not good enough, go back again. So I, I didn't think they're going to mess around with safety. Um, but I do think that, you know, the ARJ21 is an interesting case because part of the ARJ21's problem was that the aircraft that was uh, certified actually was. Um, just not very good. And they went back after the first 30 aircraft, most of which were in test flight, and then did a complete block upgrade, which is a mark of the fact that they, you know, they, they, they botched the original design. Uh, I think they're trying to avoid that with the, with the 919. Um, so I, you know, I think if they do certify it, it, it will be for Chinese use, clearly, because they're not going to bother to go down the FAA route. But I don't think they'll uh, certify an unsafe aircraft. They, their reputational damage to the party is just... Uh, un- inconceivable Ron yeah I don't I don't disagree with uh, Sasha or Richard on those points yeah I mean they, they, it would make no sense for them to play with safety for the honor of the country because it wouldn't be short-lived um speaking let me let's just uh, very quickly um just recap on on news flow uh obviously week before last was a very good one for for Boeing with uh some 230 orders that came in of this or, or excuse me 200 of the 270 airplanes that United uh, ordered were were Boeing airplanes uh Ron any update at all as to where we stand on uh, a lot of the Boeing programs overall and progress and just news flow over the course uh, of the week, you know, we we dis- discussed 787 uh, versus A350 just a minute ago. But any sort of n- news flow update? Uh, because the, you know, the last couple of weeks uh, and months, and even years have been pr- pretty sporty for Boeing news flow. But just just sort of a check in to find out where we yeah, are. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been a, a relatively quiet um, period. I mean, n- nothing else has gone wrong that we know of. Um, I would say the one point that is a, a point of, I think, issue for the customers of 787s, uh, particularly some of the lessors, is they can't get their hands on them. Um, and that's taking longer to sort out. Um, in terms of the cadence of the, you know, the, the max, um, you know, it seems to be moving along, but there's a lot of aircraft that got to move out of inventory. Uh, kind of what you hear is a lot of the inventory has actually, you know, been, you know, been claimed, I guess, you know, put it that way, um, that they actually don't have that many white tails floating around anymore. Um, but, you know, it, it's been, you know, thankfully, relatively quiet period. 
Um, Richard, why don't you uh, give us uh, a sense on why you think the NetJets, uh, first, what did NetJets say this week that you thought was so interesting and needle moving uh, when it comes to small and medium sized airplanes? Yeah, they said they would be uh, pausing um, basically uh, sales of their aircraft, which is very interesting because NetJets effectively functions as a rental car company. And if you remember one of the sort of anecdotally fascinating aspects of this economic recovery has been the (laughs) catastrophic fall off uh, in capacity for rental car companies. Everyone who wants to get on the road can't find a rental car for a lot of money. And we all have heard anecdotes about people who've rented uh, U-Haul trucks just to get around because they're cheaper than just trying to get a, you know, a Toyota or something. It's, it's absolutely, um, it's absolutely stupefying if you've tried. I mean, it, 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 you know, when you get $350 for one day, you just think, okay, I'm just going to take Uber. I'll walk. Do they have bicycles there? Right, right. I, I think yeah, you, 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 and Chris have had your your, your Michigan incident, and, and everyone everyone has these horror stories of trying to get rental cars. You know, a fractional jet operation is effectively the same deal. Part of their profit model, part of their business plan, is to rotate jets. You take new jets, you sell them. What's the residual value? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, you look at utilization for ninety one k and one thirty five operators. That's charters and fractionals. They are way, 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 way up. And the biggest discussion we're having in the industry is to what extent are those new users stick? Do they stick around after the pandemic and decide, hey, they really like this rather exciting and often off books form of private aircraft utilization that's so much better than anything else. And boy, it's starting to look promising. And when people start saying we just need our capacity. We want to. We don't want to be like Hertz and Avis. We want to actually have. So we're not selling anything. We're going to keep taking new jets, and you know we're going to grow our fleet. That implies that they're seeing some very promising signs. So from a business jet market recovery standpoint, uh, things are looking really great. Ron and Sash. Yeah, I mean Richard's Richard's right on in that. And if you hear what the the, the various OEMs are saying, if you look at uh, the utilization numbers, um, it's, it's lately, it's all been coming up roses. And just to remind uh, everyone, I mean, business aviation, um, in fact, the, what do you want to call it, the, the non-business piece of business aviation did quite well during the worst of the pandemic. Uh, business aviation utilization writ large was down a small fraction of what, what you know, commercial airlines were um, and recovered quicker. Um, if you look at um, used business jet transactions, the number of transactions that picked up quickly uh, and kind of what we're hearing from you know, everybody uh, on the ground in the business jet market, that it's, it's a buzz with activity. Sash? No, I've got very little to add to that except to say that, uh, you know, the one European com- uh, company that has heavy exposure to the business jet market, Dassault Aviation, really needs this upturn because of course they've been um you know they've been flying on empty in terms of of backlog now they're they're in the middle of the market clearly with their falcon 10x they're moving to the absolute top end of the market uh but they've been in desperate need of some orders for about the last 18 months or so uh and this would be you know this would be very good news if there was any follow-through uh in this in terms of their uh book to bill um both for the first half and probably more important second half of this year you mentioned Dassault, so this might be a good segue, uh, right, uh, to get to the Atlantique, uh, which was delivered a blow uh, in the unraveling of the Moz program. Now that Germany ordered the P8, uh, and the Rafale was having a tremendous run until it was stopped in Switzerland by the F35. Uh, talk to us a little bit about news flow in in the week and a half uh, or so since uh, our last conversation. 
and, yeah, I mean, and, we, and, and the down select decision by the Swiss. Yeah, I, I mean, Moors, I think it's, you know, this is the uh, Franco-German maritime uh, patrol aircraft or patrol aircraft system uh, program. It's one of four Franco-German programs. And I'm beginning to get the feeling that Franco-German defense programs, there's a bit of indigestion there. Um, but I think what's been very interesting is that the French press, particularly La Tribune, which is extraordinarily well. Uh, sourced as a as a newspaper has been reporting that effectively the Moors program is now dead. I mean, not just threatened, but dead by the um, as a consequence of the German uh, purchase of uh, five uh, P8s from Boeing. Interestingly, Florence Parley, the I think very highly regarded, certainly by by me, uh, French Defence uh, Minister, um, said, you know, we have to reconsider Moors. Uh, possibly the um, uh, you know the the, the German P8 just decision is just an interim purchase. And, you know, as, as we said last week, nobody buys a, uh, a P8 as an interim purchase. Right. That's a 34 year, 30 or 40 uh, year program. But I think, you know, the, the French are getting very, very frustrated by the degree to which the, the relationship they thought with they had with Germany is not is getting very fractious indeed. I would suggest that if the French keep on running programs the way that they do with Germany, and then they come up with problems, particularly when it uh, comes to uh, you know, German parliament, the French also need to consider how they do um, bilateral programs, because there's almost always fault on both sides. Uh, and although I think that the, the German P8 decision came really very, very suddenly, um, uh, you know, it's there, there must have been signs of tension and frustration there. And I think the French probably are a little bit lacking in sensitivity to, to the needs and desires of their German partners. And that there's a lot of that behind both these programs. Well, but let me ask you then, what does that mean for SCAF, right? Because when you talk to Germans, they hint um, that, you know, they, they remind you how successful Eurofighter was. They su- remind you how successive the, successful the tornado program was. And, and so, you know, both of those programs were, you know, Britain was a key partner in both of those programs. So there's this sense that the Germans may be partnered with the French, but their eye is on what's happening with Tempest and the attitude on the part of the French that we're the only ones who can run these programs and run them well. And so everybody should just take a back seat to it. Right. I mean, at, at what point does this spill over to SCAF and then SCAF become just a, a French only program, as we saw happen to the Rafale and the uh, Germans uh, hop I, over well, to the Tempest program? Well, I, uh, to you, I mean, I think we're already seeing that tension and the uh, side in Germany that perceives that most strongly is the German parliament. Um, uh, and German industry, I think, is remarkably uh, pro-SCAF at, uh, at present. Um, although, you know, it's very interesting when you talk to some uh, partners, uh, you, you know, uh, in, in the program. They are, you know, they're very, very determined to, to retain a, a high degree of independence. But the German Parliament, I think, is already finding the way that the SCAF program is going particularly hard. There is a problem, though, which is that I don't think Germany can hop over to. Tempest, as you described it, anything like as easily as they might think. Um, And the reason for that is that Tempest has already got two partners, Sweden and Italy. They have very, very clearly defined uh, roles at present. And therefore, 
you know, for Germany to sort of come in and uh, would, would involve squeezing those two partners out of certain areas of the work package. Um, and that, I think, will cause you know, significant political and, and industrial ructions. Now, the Germans will hope that as a major air force in Europe, and hence, you know, with a big offtake, Germany should take more aircraft than Italy and way more aircraft than Sweden, then, you know, the, the British will uh, will make way for them. But um, I don't detect that talking to the three nations in Tempest at the moment. I do detect that the Swedes are very, very concerned about this particular narrative, and the Italians aren't that, che- that cheered about it either. Um, so I think it could be tougher than the Germans think. And, I, and there's a real sense that the longer this whole process with SCAF takes, the tighter the window of opportunity to get into Tempest is, um, and really very, very tight indeed. Richard, uh, you've been following this and you've always, uh, let's just say, you know, give, give credit where credit is due. You've always said that you think uh, SCAF is going to be um, a, a French only program eventually. Um, you know, sort of give us your sense on where you think all this is going and what does it, what does it mean? Right. I mean, to to have kept the anyway, you know, and in the totality in the week uh, that that we've had to digest uh, both of these down select decisions. Yes, of course, I agree with Sasha's term uh, indigestion and Franco-German defense programs. But SCAF has always been to me, you know, the stupidest defense program of our time. Just the whole concept of it is just so fundamentally ignorant of historical realities that, you know, it can die now, it can die later. I really don't care. It'll die. And yes, this will become, I think, a very nice Franco-French fighter that that they do that sort of thing very well. I, I disagree with Sash about um, their ability to let Germany into the program, because as you say, you know, their offtake in Germany is considerable. You put a production line in Manching, Give them a few weapons, uh, and 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 I don't know. Give MTU the LP compressor on the turbine you use for the jet, and you're there. It's not a big deal. Maybe uh, you know as I can get some EW componentry. There's it, it wouldn't take much to meaningfully expand the total market, and uh, not at at too much expense to the existing stakeholders. I think it's eminently doable, and I think it's inevitable. I've just got one other point on, um, you know, the possible uh, move of Germany from uh, SCAF to Tempest uh, and, you know, what these things involve. Just to give an idea of what the relationships between the companies are on these two programs, you'll remember that there was a, you know, there was effectively a competition between, uh, at that stage, the UK uh, on one side and France, Germany on the other to bring other European partners into the programs. And I was told by a very, very, um, uh, you know, one of the partners that has now joined Tempest, that when they were approached about joining SCAF, that they were being offered, and his quote was, you know, design of the nose landing gear. That was it. And that attitude uh, by, you know, some of the SCAF partners of, you know, the crumbs that we will throw to other countries really did alienate uh, several countries and several companies. And I think that, you know, we've got a bit, you know, clearly, ultimately, you know, money talks, the program talks, the political commitments talk, but there's quite a lot of bad blood between the between the uh, some of the partners of the two programs, and I don't think it will be easy for Germany to move from one to the other. Um, Ron, anything you want to add to this, watching from the sidelines, and or if you want to discuss any of the budget hearings and whether uh, they're making any impact, you know, any anything defense wise you want to discuss, please feel free to discuss whether this or anything else. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't have a heck of a lot to add on the, the European stuff. I, I would say on the U.S. side, you know, the budget hearings have largely gone unnoticed by the market, right? I mean, you know, there, there hasn't, it's truly, I mean, there really hasn't been many incoming questions from investors. And um, it's also, again, a sort of a quiet period in the market you know, as well. So yeah, it's, you know, the, the hearings have been going on and just hasn't generated a lot of um, consternation or, or exuberance in the market. Any- so. Any input at all on the NetJets uh, question? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean that clearly it's a, you know, it's positive, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, um, you know, what we've been hearing from the manufacturers and from the other uh, industry players we've talked to, we frequently, you know, chat with uh, brokers and dealers and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, the, the, the BizJet market seems to be doing quite well. Now, the lights and mids uh, are doing better than the, the, the big aircraft. Um, largely because it's they're you know the big aircraft are subject to some of the same things that are going on in international travel. Um, the, the light and mid aircraft are heavily dominated by by North America, where uh, the larger aircraft have a, a, a more international contingency that are interested in them. So it's harder for folks to pick up aircraft. It's harder to car fly across borders and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, uh, let me uh, take us, uh, now that we're talking about the wealthy, uh, we've got to, again, congratulate Sir Richard Branson and the entire Virgin Galactic team uh, for the flawless Unity 22 flight uh, today. Uh, uh, you know, first billionaire to earn his astronaut wings. I think that was Chris, our mutual friend, uh, Richard, Chris Davenport. Uh, Davenport's uh, lead on it. You know, he, he'd always said that he was going to be first doing this and he beat uh, Jeff Bezos, who was shooting to get the New Shepard uh, uh, rocket suborbital flight for July the, the 20, obviously to coincide uh, with uh, Apollo, uh, the, the f- first moon landing. Uh, of course, July 20 stands out in the minds of us moon babies as a moon landing, uh, moon landing day. And, and we should also remember uh, Michael Allsbury, who died in the VSS Enterprise uh, crash in October 2014 that injured uh, Pete uh, Seabold. Um, you know, we've been watching this program for a long time. Ron, uh, you know, start us off. It's, it's, you know, whatever you think of Richard Branson, right? One of the first people to cross the Atlantic. I mean, he's a, a genuine first-class adventurer uh, and businessman and impresario. He's always said that he was going to set up uh, this kind of a service. And you've got to admire him uh, for putting his butt on the line before paying passengers uh, do. What, what's your thoughts about what this means uh, for, for the market writ large, right? Because we've got uh, Virgin Galactic, we've got Virgin Orbital, obviously, that's using the same sort of mothership um, approach, different aircraft, obviously, a 747 to launch spacecraft into orbit. But again, uh, that team is looking to change the business in, in their own way. What, what's your sense in the wake of this uh, uh, Virgin Galactic success today yeah so specifically uh, virgin galactic was planning is was is planning to do um three flights um before the end of the year um so this is one down um the these next two flights today and the next one were focusing are focusing on customer experience uh and um sir richard branson was to fly on one of the two the thinking was going to be on the second one but he chose the first one um, so a lot of this has to do with uh, cabin procedure, the experience for customers in the future, so on and so forth. And then the third flight they're going to do later this year is with some members of the Italian Air Force. Um, I do believe that's a, a revenue generating flight. 
um, that the Italian Air Force is paying for. And that's, you know, so this is you know, kind of in line with the cadence of, of events that they thought were going to happen. Next flight um, should be in six to eight weeks. Now, typically what they do after a flight is they inspect everything. And if everything is where they think it should be, um, then they'd go through the whole process of reset and, and move along. Um, so we'll hear more about that, presumably uh, tomorrow or maybe the next day. Uh, now, broader for the market, I mean, it's an interesting time in, in commercial space. Um, just to remind everybody, um, you know, Virgin Galactic was the, the first of the space SPACs, right? So it's the first publicly traded commercial space company. Uh, Blue Origin um, and SpaceX are still not publicly traded, right? They're, they're privately held companies. Um, there is some public investment in them, but it's not in uh, publicly traded equities. Um, but there are many on the block that are coming. Um, you know, Astra is a launch company that is now traded. Um, so it's the second. Um, there's another company called Rocket Lab that'll be coming down the road. Redwire is another one. AST is another one. Spire Global is another one. Black Sky is another one. So we're in, in a period of maybe the next 12 months or so, um, we'll have a whole universe of um, commercial space stocks that we just didn't have before, which is, you know, you know fascinating. And, you know, it kind of just points to a broader trend we've seen in, you know, A&D, uh, that there's been uh, a bunch of money flowing in to do innovative things, um, both in, you know, here from commercial space, but also in uh, called electric flight um, and the ways that that's kind of played out with the VTOL and other things. So, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of innovation in the space and there'll be some more companies coming public um, and and um, so it's an exciting time. But uh, your sense is that this is a relatively finite market, right? I like your Everest analogy. Well, it's, I mean, it, it's a, it, it, that's the trick, right? I mean, you know, how finite is it? It's, it's unclear. What do we know? It's, you know, somewhere between 250 and 400K per flight. Um, uh, so that's, you know, what you pay for flight. And then, you know, how many individuals are out there that want to do that? Um, so, you know, kind of, you know, take your, your guess, if you will. It's kind of that Venn diagram. You got to have the money uh, and you have to want to do the trip and then kind of where it overlaps. And that's the, that's the folks. Now, one way I've thought about it, and maybe it's not the best example, but just it's, it, it's, it's an example. If you climb Everest in today's dollars, it's about 50K ballpark. Um, by the time you get there, do everything you need to do. Um, and since, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary first climbed Everest, we've had just under 7,000 um, folks climb Everest. So, you know, there's a market for folks that, you know, want adventure, want life experience and are willing to pay money for it. Um, just how big ultimately that market's going to be, we'll see. Uh, although I would say that Everest, right, is a prolonged slog, grueling climb, base camps, lots of oxygen. This, you show up at Virgin Galactic, you do your training, you get on the airplane, you go up, you fly, you have your champagne reception, and then you can buy a Land Rover in astronaut trim uh, that's unique to you, right? I mean, it's a lot easier way of getting that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is less astronaut maybe. certificate. This is less of a time commitment, maybe less of a physical commitment, um, but more of a monetary commitment. So maybe in that sense, it's easier. Um, but they both, you know, you're taking on some risk and you're making a, a substantial investment to do it. Um, so there's some similarity right. there. But your your point, you know, your point's well taken. 
well, I mean, being being in anything, seeing anybody go above the Armstrong line, above the uh, sixty three thousand feet, not wearing a spacesuit is a little bit uh, is is a little bit sporty. Even you know, if it's just under three hundred thousand feet, it's it's still it, it's still it's still pretty uh, pretty uh, amazing. Richard, well, I'm kind of intrigued by what Ron said about there being a market. I, I think he's right. Uh, he also sort of juxtaposed this. Uh, venture and other space ones with other forms of, uh, well, new investment opportunities in the aerospace biz, be it uh, be it uh, EV toll or electric aviation, whatever. Boy, those markets are unproven and perhaps uh, minimal and perhaps even non-existent. And I have no doubt that he's right. So, uh, you know, say what you will about the virtues of this, the market size, uh, there's going to be cash here and investors will probably find something. I'm not really at all sure about all the other stuff that falls into the heading of new aerospace. Um, I, I would agree with you. I, I think this is going to be something interesting. I mean, for a lot of people, uh, spaceflight is ex- exciting. Uh, it's something that folks uh, want to do. And I think that this uh, marks. So it's going to be certainly very, very interesting uh, to watch. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Already looking forward to welcoming you back on again next week. In the meantime, have a great week, uh, and thanks a lot. Uh, great to be here, Vago, as always. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks so much. Great to be on. And, of course, my very best regards from the Stockholm Archipelago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.